Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right, well, welcome back. And we're here to talk a little bit more about uh, people who have been involved in accessibility. And today I'm happy to be speaking with Bryce Johnson. Hi, Bryce, how are you today? I'm good, Joe, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's good to have you here. And we, we've met before uh, through uh, some of the activities that at uh, Microsoft, you've helped out our local uh, accessibility meetup group to visit your place. But uh, where are you talking to us from today? I'm in Sammamish. I'm, you know, I still am at Microsoft headquarters, so I'm just outside of that on the, in Sammamish. All right. Yeah. For people uh, who may not be familiar with the area, Sammamish uh, is an uh, uh, in, in area uh, a little bit further uh, away from Seattle than the uh, Microsoft Redmond campus, kind of getting up toward the foothills of the Cascade Mountains, uh, and uh, I'm in my uh, home office on Vashon Island, uh, although I do get to our Seattle office. So uh, why don't you just start, uh, you know, just let us know a little bit about what you're doing right now with your work at Microsoft. So right now, um, I mean, I've been focused on hardware accessibility for um, a number of years now, probably three years. And we're all kind of, um, you know, working on various projects that we're, we're looking at. I think the pandemic showed us that there were a lot of opportunities for us to explore um, to get people with disabilities um, employed. And so I think that is our kind of primary, that is our primary focus is making sure that we're looking at, from a hardware perspective, the barriers that people with disabilities have towards hardware. And you know, as we kind of come out of the pandemic, we don't want to lose anything that we kind of learned while we were in there. We we want we want to make sure that we're we're coming into a place like what we would call hybrid work, where um, people with disabilities can participate equally, whether they're in person or they're you know remote, um, with you know the hardware that they need to to get the job done. Well, there's always so much going on uh, with accessibility in, inside of Microsoft, uh, a lot more than probably people can uh, even notice from the outside as of consumers, and we'll get to that. Um, but you know, one of the things that I like to do in this uh, uh, series of interviews is just find out how people got their start, made their way into accessibility. So you know, why don't you pick a point that you want to start with uh, with your career, and then we can kind of follow that back to uh, where you are today. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I can go through basically from the beginning pretty quickly. You know, I, I went to school for photography and I learned to build web pages to show photos. And this was in the late 90s and I could build web pages. So I had a job as soon as I left school. You know, I, I know that's hard for a lot of people to to kind of hear, but that's that's what happened. Um, and as I was building web pages for the design agency that I worked for, um, you know, I learned about WCAG 1. Um, it just seemed to make sense 
to why wouldn't we create websites that everyone could consume? That just always made sense. Never really was anything beyond that. So I always thought about accessibility back then in, from a compliance perspective. Um, fast forward a few years, I was um, working at a different company. We had a, a job with Microsoft Canada where we were redesigning, actually designing the first digital library for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. So for the first time, my customers were blind, right? Blind, low vision, partially sighted. And, you know, we were creating websites that weren't, you know, accommodating them. They were for them, right? If anything, you know, they were they were harder to use if you had typical vision back then. This was like around 2003. And so that really showed me that kind of point of view that, you know, we can design intentionally for people with disabilities. Um, as I, you know, around 2008, I moved to Microsoft in Seattle from Toronto, Canada. Um, always still cared about accessibility, tried to bring it up whenever we could. You know, I was a designer at Microsoft. And in around 2012, I was working in Xbox and the CVAA was, was coming up. The CVAA is the 21st Century Telecommunication and Video Accessibility Act. It had been signed into law in 2010. It was on our radar as we were developing what would become Xbox One. So we were looking into how we could apply um, accessibility and assistive technologies to um, consoles. So just in late, I think, or in early 2013, um, the video game uh, lobbying board, uh, you know, whether, uh, you know, lobbied for the industry and uh, got an extension um, to comply with CVAA for video game consoles from 2013 when the law was supposed to take into effect. That was the year that all the consoles that Sony and Microsoft launched their new consoles. So they asked for an extension. They got an extension. That was the first time I've ever had features cut based on lobbying. Hopefully it'll be the last, um, you know, and so we had two extra years. So we kind of went about our business. And then we got the band back together in 2014. We started working on how we would apply assistive technologies like narrator and magnifier, these Windows assistive technologies to um, console gaming. And at the same time, we were, you know, as we were doing all this, we had a Microsoft hackathon during our, our one week hackathon. We had to look at what it was what, what barriers existed that were unique to gaming. And the one that jumped out, quite honestly, was the controller. If you think about game controllers, game controllers are these bespoke devices that have been optimized over many generations to assume that you can do this. And if you can't do this, you know, you can't really use a game controller um, to its op in its optimum way. So we started the design back in 2015 at the hackathon of what would become the Xbox Adaptive Controller. We worked with a charity at the time called Warfighter Engaged. Um, they were a wonderful charity. It was great to, you know, looking back, it was great to start that work with veterans because, you know, we were designing a controller for limited mobility, but we were doing it for a group of people who were marginalized from society, not only after they return back from service and they have to reintegrate back into society, but if you have, if you, if you were injured while you were in service, you were coming back and you couldn't even play video games, which was, you know, if you're in service today, you grew up playing video games. So, you know, they were, 
further isolated socially by not even being able to play video games. And that story was very clear that we were creating the adaptive controller for folks with limited mobility, but we were doing it to support the health of our vets. And that was the start of the journey. We worked with a lot of other charities, both you know veteran and, and you know other charities. Um, we worked with Able Gamers, Special Effect, War, uh, Warfighter Engaged, Craig Hospital, um, and the Cerebral Palsy Foundation um, to to basically build this controller. Um, it's kind of unheard of in the hardware industry to uh, bring in, um, you know, hardware is really secretive. So we brought in five charities in the middle of the development process, but we believed in nothing about us without us. So they were our stakeholders from the beginning. They were our partners. And uh, yeah, that's when we designed the Xbox adapter controller. Well, I, I do want to come back to uh, the controller for yeah. to talk about that a little bit more. But uh, just going back to where you transitioned from, uh, you know, doing some of that first uh, review of WCAG as you know with the design agency, and then uh, moving to Microsoft and getting into what you're doing now. I mean, there, I'm assuming there's a lot went on there. It's kind of a big leap. So maybe you know, one of the things uh, yeah, I maybe ask you about is. Uh, how was it trying to learn the things that you needed to do or like what did you have to lean on or 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 do to be able to feel like you're moving forward in understanding uh this you know the space for people with the physical challenges and how to support that sure and i mean i haven't uh you know while while my my background is in WCAG. I think I think everyone who works in technology can get traced back to WCAG. In you know, I don't really care what you work in. Like there's there's always those those lineages. I've I've really haven't focused on that type of of I'll, I'll call it remediation for a really long time. Um, I think for us. Uh, you know, um, about five years ago at Microsoft, we started to think about what our inclusive design practice was. And at the time, you know, my boss and my mentor, August de los Reyes, um, you know, he always talked about the difference between accessibility and inclusive design in a way that I really, that really appealed to me. Um, he talked about accessibility being like, what is the, you have a barrier and what's the facilitator to get over the barrier, right? like an engineering approach it's like well what's you have a problem what's the solution to the problem whereas we always talked about inclusive design is hey what if we just didn't design the barriers in the first place <laughs> you know like right and how do we how do we think about it he always he always compared inclusive design to uh to urban planning um in a way which is you know just to, to think a little bit more holistically and and uh and to synthesize those solutions across different groups of you know um, functional limitation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what's I think changed for us is, is like, you have this foundation of tried and true accessibility practices that you build off of, but it's not the, it's, it's not everything, you know? Uh. Well, then as, as you found your way into the gaming space, I imagine that like, that would be an area where people who had been in gaming design for a long time would just the idea of what it would take to make games more accessible would seem to even been look like a a more difficult climb or end, <laughs> solving an engineering problem than maybe other 
you know, things like a website or or some other type of application uh, was, you know, was there any kind of, you know, that things going on along those lines where everybody really had to reset what it meant to be inclusive uh, in a way that hadn't been possible before? Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting when you look at um, like game developers, um, if you look at general purpose computing, there's always been a strong tie to academia. So that means there's always been a, a strong tie to accessibility because academia has always had a lot of interest in accessibility. And so therefore, you know, if you're working with like any kind of human computer interaction team, it, it comes up. Whereas like video games, you know, um, maybe a, a decade ago, I can definitely say this because I was there, um, uh, you know, video games were like um, video game players designing video games for people like themselves, right? Um, they didn't. They didn't really. They didn't really do a lot of outward work. I remember. I mean, I remember like when user research was new to the video game field, right? Like they literally were designing games for the, each other, right? And so when we started to come in and we started to talk about accessibility in games, it was hard because I think one of the biggest things that is difficult in accessibility is, you know, that getting over your own biases that you've naturally built through like a lifetime of, of interactions. Um, you know, it's really easy for people to say, get over your biases, but those things are, those things are what shape you, right? And so, you know, in our practice, in our inclusive design practice, we 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 say, you know, it's it's hard to get over your biases. We acknowledge that it's difficult, um, and that that and that a large part of the work is is getting over your biases. And you get over your biases by working with people with disabilities, right? You know, you can't. I don't. You know, I I, I don't believe you can read enough books to understand what people with disabilities need, you really have to work with the community. So yeah, I, I will say that for, for, for video games, that was tough. Um, I will also say though that, you know, I've been around, you know, I've been in accessibility adjacent for 20 years and gaming has caught up faster than anybody. Like they might've started last, but man, are they going quick. And uh, they're doing some really wild stuff. Cause if you think about a game engine, you know, as it exists today, there's there's no object model in a game engine. It paints pixels on a screen, right? So how do you start to make these experiences that are, you know, not only that are more complex than most interactions, um, and you don't even have an object model. And let alone, like, you know, I think one of the things, you know, that I we've always talked about when it comes to gaming you're not trying to remove all the barriers in a game. You're trying to right size the barriers in a game, right? It's not like it's not like building like a you know an intake form or, or something like that where you want to eliminate barriers. Like gaming is barrier, right? Like assonance, dissonance, you know, push pull. Like that challenge is why people play. So it isn't about eliminating the challenge. It's about making the challenge fit um, a diverse group of individuals. Well, I, I, um, we, I moved away from, uh, you kind of ended your story where you got to the Xbox controller. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to want to mention that anybody interested in that, 
uh, that they could probably easily just uh, type that into a search engine and you're going to find a lot of information because uh, um, I'll pat you on the back for that or, or your team because uh, it, it rightfully got a lot of uh, a lot of good uh, media coverage, I think, and uh, you know it's a really good story to hear and so uh, I think people can uh, kind of look in and, and see what that's all about. But one of the things that kind of went beyond that for me is when uh, you uh, invited us to be able to use your space at the uh, Xbox lab where there was a lot more than the hand controller because you demonstrated different assistive devices uh, to be able to do input output with uh, with the controller. So, so you've, you really have, uh, you know, expanded, uh, you know, how you think about how people interact with your devices. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what the adaptive controller taught us, and, and I appreciate, you know, your encouragement there, we've been overwhelmed by the positivity of it. I will say that, you know, it was the first device of its kind from us. Um, and we we learned a lot, and there's still a lot to do that we could improve. So yes, you can type it into the, you can type it into like you know you can Google Xbox Adaptive Controller, and you get all kinds of of um, people talking about it. But I think we still need to do better on on showing people how to use it, and that and that part I will say is tricky, you know, because you know we are we we've always been slightly medical adjacent. We work a lot with. Um, occupational therapists and other types of other types of therapy. So, but but you know, in the end of the day, we're we're a game controller, we're a toy. You know, we want to just have people have fun. So, yeah, you you came by the lab, and that's super cool. We have this space at Microsoft called the Inclusive Tech Lab. We look forward to hosting people again um, this fall. And um, you know, what we do in that space is it's really a space for people with disabilities. We like to think of it as a an embassy on campus for the disability communities that we serve because we we try to make the space as accessible as possible. Um, and you know, we can always we're always learning and trying to do better there. Um, but what we what we do is when people come in, we, we have the things that they either need to get up and running whether it's with a game or or with you know some other type of like input output interaction um but what we've been learning is you know basically that for um especially for people with limited mobility um modularity and multimodal interaction is really the way to go and so when i say multimodal you know it's like how do we how do we start to combine different input modalities and and orchestrate them in a way that makes sense for the person and and then the system just figures it out. So you know there's lots of interaction designs out there that are like voice only or touch only or you know but how do we actually start to do better with multiple ones at the same time? Like what is voice and touch at the same time? What is you know what is switch and you know. I don't know. I actually, I would say switch in mouse or switch in eye gaze is a good one to actually think about. Um, you know, how do we think about? Because because you know, I'll, I'll work with people um, like say quadriplegics who will use switch interfaces um, on their mobile phones, but every once in a while they'll pull out a they'll pull out a stylus and they'll they'll put it in their mouth and they'll 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 point and click like the rest of us because it really just depends on you know your mood and how you feel and what you're trying to do um i think 
I think this uh, this idea that you know there are certain ways that people with disabilities interact with computers is false. <laughs> you know, so yeah. Like the while while we were there, this goes back a couple of years ago uh, when we were there at the lab. But uh, there was also a demo that was running about uh, um, purely audible cues for interactions. That was another one that uh, I was really amazed to encounter. That yeah, it's it's cool because if you think about audio, right? Like we always, you know, accessibility. We always think about screen readers, and we think about um, about that, but what what gaming sort of showed us was that um, you know people who are blind can take in multiple sources of audio in ways that like you know I, I think typical folks can't or or maybe maybe not can't that's not the right word but but don't <laughs> maybe is a better word of thinking about it. So you know how many years are we? Um, we're designing these screen reader experiences where you have this single channel of multiple, like of a, of a mono voice, basically telling you what this in immensely complex visual interface is, and and how else could we start to represent that data sonically? Um, I have this thing going right now where it where people where I where I'm questioning the the usefulness of audio description for for specific types of video because right now i feel like um you know you get a lot of like well add audio description you're like but what is the content and and no one's asking those questions right it's just like no this is you have to have audio description you know and and i think and i i mean i'm not saying no i'm not saying that we we shouldn't have audio description but i do wonder what's better i do wonder if there is something better right i mean i remember so there's this there's this uh there's this musician in Seattle. Um, her name's Lexi Khan, um, and she's blind. And she came in and she was talking to us about, you know, a bunch of stuff. And she was talking about audio description. And she's like, you know, they never tell me if the guy who's talking is hot or not. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. They don't. So she's always got to ask people in the room, like, is he hot? And I'm like, and I'm like, and and that's that's really what it's really kind of what I wonder about a lot of these things, you know, like we have all these best practices and, but at the end of the day, are we, are we getting, are we actually conveying it in as best as we can? So. Yeah, we're, we're, we're always iterating, just keep moving forward wherever we can. Uh, another area that uh, I wanted to ask about it. Well, you know, a lot of us uh, were in different size organizations structured differently um you know certainly microsoft is, is a you know mammothly sized organization with many divisions departments products services it's so big you you have your part you've you've uh, talked to us a little bit about what you're involved in um but like how does it feel from your perspective of 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 how it is with the work that you do and then how does that work into the Microsoft's broader commitments to accessibility is—is is there a a, a corporate-wide uh, support network that kind of brings forward uh, kind of top-level ideas or and supports, or is it more uh, controlled in your individual area where you're responsible for your own uh, progress forward? 
Well, I mean, we have an ambition as a company, and that's embedded in our mission, you know, empower every person. Um, you know, we take that literally. Um, and the direction of our accessibility practice um, is is centralized under under our chief accessibility officer, Jenny Lee Fleury. So, I mean, how we deal with it kind of goes from division to division. We're all kind of a little bit different. Um, I think there are definitely, there are some parts of the company that are very driven by um, what we would call our trusted tester, you know, um, practice, which is a rigorous, you know, accessibility testing protocol um, that we put um, our, many of our software, well, all of our software products in. Um, hardware is, is a little bit different um, as far as trusted tester goes, um, but all the software products go through that. And so uh, that's part of the foundation again. Um, and, you know, I, I think it really just depends on on where your challenges are. I think about mobility a lot because of, because of, because I work in hardware, you know, um, I think a lot of software folks, uh, you know, tend to think a lot more about vision, which is completely understandable. And it's not like we don't think about vision. You know, there are things that we've done with the Surface keyboard specifically for our blind users. We added tactile bumps to um, F4 and F8 on our Surface keyboard to give um, our blind users a little bit more um, of affordances on where their fingers are on the keyboard. Um, we made um, FN lock uh, available to uh, the screen to, to Windows Narrator on on Windows, the state of FN Lock. So you, everyone's familiar with Caps Lock, right? You know, you have a screen reader on, you hit Caps Lock, it says Caps Lock on, Caps Lock off. But up until a few years ago, FN Lock or FN, um, the screen reader didn't know the state of those keys, and not just with our keyboards, with all keyboards. Because when we looked at it, we started to add that to the HID specification for keyboards. So we had to basically go to the standards body of keyboards and say, listen, we want to add FN and FN lock as, as keys that are known to the operating system. And so we did that with the launch of Laptop 3. You know, that wasn't a thing. And so, you know, we're, we're moving forward a little yeah. bit at a time. Are there uh, any uh, new exciting things uh, that you're able to talk about? Uh, any? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited for, I think, what what's kind of coming. Um, you know, there's 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 been a there was a blog post of what's coming um, for accessibility in, in Windows 11. Um, so that that's going to be exciting. We, we will, you know, we'll we'll have more to share next time we talk about um, our, our devices. Um, but I think, you know, we are starting to we're, we're starting to get to to get to a place where we where we see things that we can we can kind of go after um because i will say like when i first showed up in hardware um if you if you just look from a compliance perspective i'm going to tell you it's impossible for some things to fail like if you look at the compliance rules as i've read them for like say section 508 for hardware um or en301 um you know it's pretty hard for a mouse to fail those rules um, the, the way they're written, but that doesn't mean that we don't have tons of opportunity to make more accessible mice. So. Well, uh, Bryce, thanks a lot for taking this time to uh, share a little bit about your background and the things that you're working on and are looking forward to in the future and hopefully uh, be able to get back to the, uh, the lab when we're, we're able to come back out of this uh, Get, get back together in the physical world again. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. Our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design, we can move existing designs to development in a sprint. And maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.